0: There is a grand possibility that for you in your home where you grew up, your mom, your dad had nicknames for you, pet names for you. There is also the grand possibility that because of those nicknames and pet names, you have similar names for your children. Now, some of you guys may not be into that, which is fine. You work through it. However you display love, that's on you. But let me just ask this. If your mom and dad had nicknames for you when you were growing up, could you just raise your hand? Anybody in the room? Okay. Now, keep that hand up if you have nicknames slash pet names for your kids. Anybody? Okay. All right. Things that if you call them that... They know you are talking to them specifically, and if someone else were to call them that, it would be incredibly awkward and weird. I share regularly that my dad, until he passed away, called me baby. I was a full-grown man, had multiple gray hairs on my head, and this man was calling me baby. My grandmother called me dear heart regularly. Now, the thing is, if you were to call me baby, that would be super weird for all of us. If you were to say to me, Pastor Chad, dear heart, I would not know what to do with that. These things have value because of who says them. When God inspires John to write the book of 1 John, there is a name that God begins to to use for the people of God... That I don't want us to miss that could be viewed as devaluing or m- making someone to feel lesser than if it were not for who from whom it was coming from. John was a conduit of the love and the care that God had for the people who were members of this church at Ephesus, and God's love for them is one that is displayed through these words that John chooses to use over and over, where he will call them little children or or dear children. And when we look at this text today, I want us just to know that, that this could be something that would make you feel lesser than if you did not have a grasp of who was saying it. So we look at the text today and we see what God has done for us by making us His dear little children and how He has made it possible for us to do something that we were unable and incapable of doing before Him. The central idea that we're going to pursue today throughout this text from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through 3, verse 10 is what takes place when someone be- becomes a child of God. You become, the word we use is Christian. And, and here's what we can find for Christian people, for all of us who claim to know the person of Jesus through His death and through His resurrection. You are a Christian if you have placed your trust there. If you believe that your sin had to be dealt with and the only one who could deal with that was Jesus, you are a Christian. You've placed your faith in that he would deal with sin. And here's what we can learn. Christians can flee from sin because they are free from sin. If you are not a Christian, you are unable, incapable to flee from sin because you don't know the one who is the refuge for that. You've not trusted Him. You've not placed your your hope in Him. You don't find Him to be your deep, blessed assurance. none None of those things are true of you. But for every believer in this space, here's what the Scriptures are saying to us. That Christians can flee from sin because we have been freed from sin. And we'll see as John works through the idea of what sin is and how that works and how it really does manifest itself, make itself known in the lives of people as we read through this text. So if you've got your Bible with you, and I'd love for you to have that. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. So now, little children, remain in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming if you know that he is righteous and you know this well everyone who does what is right has been born of him see what great love the father has given to us so that we should be called God's children and we are The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet, has not been revealed. But we do know this, that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the very beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone who has been born of God does does not sin because his seed remains in him. But he he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God. Especially the one who does not love his brother or his sister. When we come to this text today, what we're finding is that we are seeing John give us a little bit more insight of what he writes in First John, or rather, in the Book of John, chapter one, where he says this in verse twelve. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. So what we're seeing take place in the text is God's children, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, are able to live a life where sin does not define nor defeat us because Christ has defeated sin and he is the one who defines us. So now, little children... Remain in Him. The word that your Bible may use is the word abide. I know how the Bibles that many of you hold, most of them do say abide. What we're seeing happen in this passage is that John is talking to us about where we stay. And how we stay there. And how we do not evacuate that. Remain in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Be with Jesus. The notion of confidence in his second coming. What we believe as followers of Jesus is that there is a day where Christ will come again. And he will call his children to himself. He will call believers to himself. We will be restored to him. We will see our faith made sight. We will be with God forever on top of forever. We believe this. We trust this. And what John is saying to the church at Ephesus is... You can have confidence in his second coming. You can have assurance in his second coming. You can know that Jesus is going to return for you. And for those of us who are believers in a world that is full of strife and difficulty and hardship. Full of suffering because of the fall of humanity and because of fallen human beings. Jesus has called us to see and know we can rest assured in the assurance that he provides. That when you look in these words, there's a play on words in the original language that I don't... Really, it's, it's, it's easy for us to miss because we read these words in, in our language. But when John writes this, he uses the words parousia and parousia. Those two words are intended to sound like one another. It is a, a, a word play. It is a use of John to talk to us about how we can have confidence, that is assurance... In the second coming of Jesus, we can be assured in this assured thing. So what that means for believers in a world that may be difficult and is difficult, that is really hard, we can have confident, fearless joy in that Jesus Christ will return for his people. He promises us that. So every time we look around and see that this is a difficult place to live, that people are difficult. If you don't think that people are difficult, I have a question for you. Have you met people? (laughs) We have confident, fearless joy because of what God has done for us in Jesus. 29. If you know, if you know that He is righteous you know this as well everyone who does what is right what is right has been born of him the idea of rightness there is not just correct behavior it is correct behavior in response to Christ's action on our behalf the passage is pointing out to us as followers of Jesus That our lives are to declare that we belong to Him. When you know, when any of us know that we are loved and valued, that will help you to love and value as you mature. You will grow in your walk with, as you grow in your walk with the Lord. You will grow in your appreciation for His love and value for you. These are immense things that God has done. I share regularly about my grandmother in here, almost to the point where I feel like I need to apologize at times. She raised me really from very early on. I was, when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, I was seven years old. But even before that, my grandmother lived two houses down the street, and I ate a lot of meals there. And by a lot, I mean a lot of meals there. I would eat at my house and then go down there. That, that's how you get this figure I would move there. When I turned 16 years old, I would move in with her when my mom passed away. Our relationship was a very unique one because, as I've said to some of you before, uh, up to that point, she was my grandmother and she did grandmother things. And we all know what grandmother things are. They make Grandparents can make the lives of parents absolutely miserable. <laughs> Don't do that. It's okay to do that. My father-in-law had the audacity to tell me he enjoyed grandchildren more than he did his children one time. That seemed unhelpful. My my grandmother would have these moments where she would give me grandmother money. And we all know what grandmother money is. They just throw money at you for whenever they see you. She would make sure that if I spent the night with her on a Saturday, she would pop popcorn and bake brownies and we'd watch the Golden Girls together. I would go to church with her on Sunday morning. She would make sure that my clothes were ironed every single Sunday. I brought some of these things to Hope's attention when we got married. She said, well, that's cool. (laughs) You didn't marry your grandmother, you weirdo. (laughs) When I moved in with her, she didn't just give me grandmother money anymore. Now she gave me money for everything that I needed. Now she did not just bake brownie and pop popcorn and explain inappropriate old lady humor. Now she would make sure that my meals were provided. Now she would make sure that I had everything that I needed, not just what I wanted, but what I needed now she did not just make sure that clothes were prepared for Sunday morning when I would go to church now clothes were prepared every day this was before there were fabrics that made it look like they were ironed all the time I was hers when John talks about us being the children of God what he's saying is this is how God sees you you're you're his you, He has a deep affection for you. He cares for you. You've been born of Him. Well, who's the Him in the passage? It's Trinitarian for us to see this as the triune God of the Bible. John uses references to the Father and to Jesus interchangeably at times. Conduct yourselves in ways that you show that you are aligned with him, is what John is saying. Because you are his. Mom, be my grandmother, there was a day. I, I went to seminary. I finished. I got an apartment above hers and her apartment complex. And I would spend months trying to block out all that happened to me at seminary. And I can remember the day where I walked in and we had long since surpassed the magic laundry basket of my college years. I walked in and my laundry basket was gone and it was full of dirty clothes. When I left, I ran down the steps to go into her apartment and she'd hung... She had Before I could get a word out, I noticed she had ironed all the shirts that needed to be ironed. She had all the things that were folded that need to be folded in the basket, ready to go. I said, Beezer, you don't have to do this anymore. And she said, Chad, I don't do this because I have to. I do this because you're mine. God doesn't owe any of us anything. He doesn't do any of the things that He does for us so that we can... Because we are a necessity. He loves us. And He does what He does on our behalf so we can know... That we are His. That we're His. See what great love the Father has given to us. As much as I like to look at different translations, I think the NIV expresses this best. Because it doesn't just say see. It says how great is the love of The Father has lavished on us. The active verb in this dynamic translation is lavish. God has poured out oodles. Technical term. Bundles. Overwhelming amounts of love so that you can know and I can know That I'm His. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us so that we should be called the children of God. Love is in chapter 3 nine times. It's in chapter 4 27 times. For all the love that John talks about, he also has dividing lines throughout the book. And when he talks about the love of a great father in this passage and in in the whole of his writing, it was in stark contrast to the world that he lived in. Because a good father in the Greco-Roman world was not a guarantee. I I suppose they didn't have Facebook memories to make them tear up every year at vacation like happened to me last week. I remember when she was seven. In the Greco-Roman world, children were unwanted and they were abused. A father could order for an unwanted child to be taken to the middle of nowhere and just left to die. Children were often, often sacrificed to the god Saturn. Unwanted children were dealt with by drownings and cold and hunger and dogs. The, the counterpoint of God's love is proven to be a more drastic thing than when we look at the world, when we look at the world John lived in. How, how much you see the vast cavern between love and hate in our world when you look into the world of John, what he's seeing is this. God's love functions this way and this world functions this way. God, when he lavishes... He acts in a certain way. And how did God act to display His great love for each and every one of us? What is the way that we see that? Is this just about God making me feel emotional and ushigushi. gushi? No. The lavished work of God to show love for us. He sent Christ Jesus to die in our place for our sins. God's lavish love is that He is continually merciful, He is continually loving, and He's continually gracious to us. And if I can remind us of anything, when we see God saying that He has a great love for you, would we know that we short-sell the love of God when we don't see ourselves the way that God sees us? We see ourselves as... We see ourselves through the lens of shame. Through the lens of guilt. And when God looks at you, he sees the best you. God sees you as fully redeemed. God sees you as restored to himself. God's not waiting for you to get better at being you. Jesus sees you fully. He loves you wholly and completely. because when God offers to us this love relationship he doesn't just offer a name change he offers a status change in Jesus you are completely different and unique John tells us that we are born of God five times it is lost on us it is lost on every one of us how remarkably spectacular it is that God would choose to love us don't miss that. J.I. Packer says this. He's on my list of top ten favorite Anglicans. You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as, the of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out he, how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. God has loved you and made possible for you to love him in return. He has redefined you and God reminds us what a father really is and what a father really does. So in a a world the one that John lived in, there is this stark contrast between a loving father and the way that a removed father, a simple donor of genetics, was. And John is saying to a people who have been overlooked, mistreated, you may not feel as if you belong to anyone here, but you belong to God the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It didn't. It, this is hard for us to get in a world where there are multiple churches. In the Gulf of Houston, as a friend told me years ago before I moved here, when I asked if it was Greater Houston, she actually said it's Lesser Houston. You pass approximately 40, 11 churches on the way here today. So many churches. Churches on every corner, corners on every church. When John talks about not knowing God, we have to be careful because what he's saying, is he's not just saying, this is a world where there is are side. Where well, we've been given the freedom to, to put out verses many times out of context on our church signs he's talking about a world that is void of God it doesn't understand God because it doesn't understand what a loving father really is and it doesn't understand Jesus because for whatever reason they, they can't grasp that anyone would love them to the point of dying for them Dear friends, we are God's children now, right now. I love the word now there because it's really intentional. For all of us who who have made walking into a relationship with God about streets of gold and pearly gates, would you know that your days as a follower of Jesus begin at conversion? You You belong to Jesus now, and what you will be has not yet been revealed. We don't know what we're going to look like, But we do know that when he appears, we will be like him. This is not a matter of him being present but far away. A distant dad, it's different. He is close to us, yet he's unseen. And we can find comfort in the fact that he is close even though we do not see him. Because we are being made more and more like him. This is better than we ever would have imagined. And the promise of God is that there is a spectacular future for God's people. And I don't want us to miss that because heaven sounds pretty spectacular when you read through the scriptures. However, we cannot say that without we can say that truth without diminishing the beauty of our present reality, that we we live as a restored people to God in the here and in the now. And we, can't, we don't have to overlook the general blessings of God in this world for the sake of thinking about the next. God has been good to you right here, right now. This is what's happening. We're going to be like Him. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself. This is the scriptural idea of what's called sanctu- sanctification really. It's that when we are people who have been made right by Jesus, we are going to do what we can to align our lives with the rightness of Jesus. That we would make decisions and decision and decision and decision so that we would be moving away from the sin that bound us to the one who has called us from it. It's the redemptive work of us trusting that God is doing a work in us where we're walking away from sin and walking toward Jesus. There's no such thing as a spiritual dual residency. We don't don't belong to Satan and to Jesus. Those people are at war with one another. And if I'm going to follow Jesus, I I cannot love the world's rebellion against God. The world that we live in has rebelled against God fully in totality. The created order and all of the created beings are living in rebellion against God, yet God has called us as his people to himself to be light bearers in darkness. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness. Here, John continues to draw lines down the middle. God's people function this way. Those who do not belong to God function this way. This is what we see in the text. Is that what we see in us? Or have we embraced things that God has said not to embrace... There's no sin in him. There's no sin in Jesus. There is sin in everyone else, and we're at war with that. You you know that he is revealed. Verse 5. You know that he is revealed, that he was revealed so that he might take away sins. And there is no sin in him. There's none whatsoever in Jesus. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Now, if you are concerned that you sinned on the way here today, do not be concerned. Realize you are human because we are sinful people. This is not sinless perfection. When it talks about living in sin, it's actually John's already pointed out the idea that, that we, if we say that we are sinless, we are liars earlier in the book. What he's pointing out is for those who are in this passage... It would mean to have a disposition of lawless rebellion. What we're saying in this passage about the sinlessness of God and the sinfulness of humanity is this. When you have been restored to Jesus, brought to light from darkness, to life from death, this sin no longer gets to set the tone. And there are so many times for us that it would be easier for sin to set the tone. It would be so much simpler for us if we could just go with the flow. The problem is the flows keep going every direction. Well, last week I was horrified when, on Saturday when I just began to look at the news and, and read about what was taking place in our world. So let me be really clear. I'm, I'm anti-terror. I loathe it. I loathe the idea that people would call that people would want anyone to live in fear. And in our geopolitical climate, a sovereign nation like the nation of Israel is well within its right to defend itself against wicked, vile, godless attacks. Just hear me say that. No that can be true. Simultaneously, I'm a great commissioned Christian. I hold to the idea that, uh, that Scriptures points out in Romans, where it says, "How will they know if they have not heard, and that we, w- that we should go make disciples of all nations?" On top of that, I believe that we're eternal beings. If we were not eternal beings, then just go to war, fight the fights, battle the battles, because there's nothing everlasting about this. But in short, what we've been given is a situation. here's what's not complicated. Terror is horrific. We should hate it, we should loathe it, we should undo it. But what is complicated is that I have a God who is just, and that same God wants to open the eyes of sinful people. And as much as I hate what's taking place around our world, I still have to pray that lost people would turn to Jesus because I don't get to opt out of the Great Commission. It's something that God has called every believing person in this room to. So in short, I have to simultaneously commune with God for justice for those who are affected in this world by this heinous sin. And I have to ask this God to give me eye-opening mercy for those who will be affected in the next. I have to beg God to turn the hearts of people toward Himself. What I'm having to ask God to do is something miraculous in this broken world. And when I ask God to do something miraculous in this broken world, I'm having to ask Him to continue to do miraculous things in my broken heart. Because I have a God who is loving and merciful and who is also just. And I don't understand the way that all works together and neither do any of us. So we ask God to work. We plead with God to work. We beg God to move in our world to draw sinful people to Himself. What the passage is pointing out is their sinful failures. They're hiccups. They're not habits. For a believing person in this space, your sinful failures are a hiccup. They cannot be a habit. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, just as he is righteous. Don't let anyone deceive you, John says. There were people then, and there are people now, who would tell you to continually live in sin is perfectly okay. The problem with that is the Bible. The one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil, he sinned from the very beginning. John alludes to Genesis and Exodus almost as much as anyone. And he's pointing out what we see in Genesis chapter 3 that the devil has been sending from the very beginning to live as if a changed life is unnecessary it shows exactly whose side you're on it displays it and just to be crystal clear there is love only found in one place in one person in this conundrum the text has presented to us the devil has no love for those who belong to him, nor does he have a desire to protect him, them. So for every lost person in this, in this room and in this world, that Satan has no desire for your greater good because there is nothing about him that is good. As a matter of fact, for every unbelieving person, Satan himself is demanding judgment upon you and with accusation after accusation. And every time that any believer in this room would say, no, I'm not sinning, or we overlook the sin that we've committed, we are, we are saying that Satan has power over us in that moment. Because confessing your sin is part of the Christian life. The devil's power of accusation and judgment is removed when we say that we need Jesus to make it so that we are at one with God. We need Jesus. You and I need Jesus more than we realize we need Jesus. Jesus. We do. John says this, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. There's... substitutionary atonement is what we believe is the consistent rhythm of the scriptures that Jesus would die in our place there is another atonement theory called Christus Victor and you see where this comes from as it aligns with the notion of substitutionary atonement that is the base, that is the rhythm but Christ as victorious over Satan and his works that is also a present reality in the scriptures Jesus defeats sin Jesus tells hell to go to hell Jesus tells death to die that's who Jesus is we see it working throughout the text. Everyone who has been born of God does not live in continual sin because Jesus remains in him. His seed remains in him. He's not able to live in continual sin because he's been born of God. So the text is pointing out to us that those of us who are children of God will not live in habitual sin because, because the life of God is in us. It's the notion of confession. It's the notion of repentance. It's the notion of turning away from our sin because we've been given the freedom to turn from our sin. For non-believing people, you are unable in your own power to turn from your sin. And for every believing person in this room, there was never a point where in your own power you turned away from your own sin. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. I love that. Again, another line. Whoever does not do whoever does not do what is right is not of God. And then John comes to this unique place where he says especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. This is pointing out that the unity of believers supersedes, overwhelms, and undoes the disunity that this world would have us to hold on to. This is a pretty different room. I don't know if you ever looked around. Some of you guys work together. Some of you guys work in one position. Some of you work in the other. Some of you are engineers. Some of you are operators. And from what I've learned over the last few years, that's basically like the jets and the sharks. You just don't always get along. (laughs) That's a west side story reference. I don't know who called it, but I'm with you. For every believing person in this room, your unity in Christ is bigger than your disunity in everything else. So we learn to love, we learn to function, we learn to care in ways that God loves, function, and cares. It's practical things. So so here's what we're going to do. We're about to take communion as a body of believers in place, but I'm going to stay here. I don't usually stay here. But I want you to stand with me right now and just kind of bow your head where you are. And think about the love that this text points out to us and and the love that Christ has for us ultimately in the passage that we see. Jerry's going to begin to play in the background, and I'm going to begin to pray for us in just a moment. But would we think and will we consider what takes place in that God has done a work so that we would be restored to him? That work was a great love on God's behalf. So with our heads bowed and and, and no one looking around the room, I'm going to say a couple of things. One is, if you have no faith relationship with Christ, I'm so grateful you're here. If you've never placed your trust in Christ, I would love for you to place your trust in Christ today. And you can do that in this way, Jesus, I need you. This is just a conversation you can have with the Lord. I don't have to give you, you don't have to use my exact words. Jesus, I need you. because I am a sinner and I cannot do anything about my sin in and of my own power but Jesus your death on the cross was victory over sin so Jesus here's my sin I trust you walk you through that one more time. Jesus, if you're not a believer in this space, I encourage you to think through this. Interact with the Lord. Let me give you some guidelines. Jesus, I need you because I am a sinner. I can't do anything about my sin. So Jesus, you you take it. You, you take it. Your death on the cross defeated sin and offered life in exchange. Jesus, here's my sin. I want you. I want to be your child. If you prayed that or you prayed something like that, I'm in the back right hand corner of the, of the room in a few moments. I'd love to chat with you about what it means for you to place your trust in Christ. That you have trusted that Jesus has died in your place. As Jared continues to pad... I would encourage believers before you come get the cup and you come take the bread and go back to your seat to evaluate your own heart and any habitual patterns of sin that are there that you need to run from and flee from. To think through any brothers or sisters in this room you may have wronged or hurt. in the weight of the moment. Think about the beauty of Christ's death and his resurrection and what it means that God would restore you to himself. you can begin to move to the table to take the elements and go back to your seat.